Life is fragile and unpredictable. Our world is volatile and our hearts feel vulnerable. It's time to face it. In one way or another, we all have fear. Fear is something that we come by naturally, but it's not our spiritual inheritance in Christ. So while fear clamors and rages in our world and in our hearts, the words of Jesus ring out deeper and more true. Do not be afraid. So what if our freedom comes not by suppressing our fears, but by bringing them to light? What if the opposite of fear isn't courage, but love? And what would it look like for that love to cast out all fear? Let's explore these questions together. Let's learn what it means to fear not. Good morning, friends. It is such a delight to see all of you. Some of you, I have not seen your faces in a while. And so it's good to be here together. And to you that are watching at home, it's great to see your face today. Well, I guess I don't get to see your face. You're stuck just with my face. Sorry about that. But to the rest of you, I'm glad it's a two-way here. But I hope you'll leave a message in the comments because I'd love to read in the comments later what how today was affecting you and the impact it made on you. So share that with us so we can learn that because I can't see you afterwards. So I hope you had a good July 4th weekend and I hope you are continuing to have a good weekend. Yesterday I got together, our family got together with my parents and we watched two things. The first thing was on Disney Plus, we watched Hamilton. Yeah, and it was pretty good. I hadn't seen it or listened to any of the music before, but I really enjoyed it. My dad fell asleep, but the rest of us enjoyed it. He needed a nap, and it was nice and dark and cool in my living room. And we did that, so that was good. But then we watched another thing, and it was actually the first live sporting event that I have watched in months. And it's been a long time since I've watched a live sporting event. So on television, on ESPN, I turned it on the annual hot dog eating contest. Now, you may be saying to yourself, hot dog eating is not a sport. But technically, officially, it is. My dad looked it up on Google. And while chess and video games are not sports, because they are more focused on mental skill rather than physical skill, hot dog eating is indeed a sport. Now, this is a competition where men and women, they do the men and women separately. They have 10 minutes to eat as many hot dogs and buns as they can possibly eat. And I, the, the favorite, the champion, of this sport is a guy named Joey Chestnut, who has won this event for so many years. In fact, he is also the eating competitive eating champion of eating Big Macs and chicken wings, in case you were wondering. Now, he is a guy, when you see him, he is not a gigantic person. In fact, he is very athletic. He trains year round for this, these sports, these events. He stretches his stomach. His jaw muscles are stronger than yours will ever be because he has, with devotion and commitment, 
set himself to be a champion of hot dog and Big Mac and chicken wing and macaroni and cheese eating. Now, some people tune in to this event every year on July 4th to see these people eat hot dogs. That is not why I show up. I show up because of the introductions. If you've never seen this event, before they start this 10-minute competition, they bring every person up on stage with a rousing verbal written introduction delivered by one of the greatest orators of our time. I've forgotten the guy's name, but I do follow him on Twitter, and he is pretty amazing. Now, I want to read to you his introduction this year for the world champion, Joey Chestnut, who, after this introduction, got on stage and ate hot dogs. When we are broken and beaten and undone, there is still a path forward, a beacon of certainty, a citadel of light over a silent sea, for he stands as he always has, as resolved as the promise of our nation, always onward, always forward, carry the weight, advance the cause, never submit until the earth is dust and stone, until the last echo of the dry thunder of time, he will fight on. For he is the 4th of July, hot dog eating champion of the world. And the rock on which he stands is not a rock. It is the United States of America. This is Joey Chestnut. And then Joey Chestnut walked on stage and topped, beat his world record from the previous year and ate 75 hot dogs and buns in 10 minutes. Now you may be thinking to yourself, this is just gross. This is just gross. Why are we talking about this? Even if you think this is gross, even if you think hot dog eating is not a sport, you have got to admire the audacity of this introduction. For a man that is about to get on stage and eat hot dogs, we are going to boldly declare this about him and about who he is and the rock on which he stands. That is ridiculous. It is ridiculous, and I love it. I love every word of it, every bit of it, because isn't that the kind of resolution and boldness we are all longing for right now? Man, I wish I felt that way about so many things in my life right now that do not feel that solid to me. I wish that I could have people introduce me into every room like that. I wish I could have been introduced on stage today to that. But I fear, my friends, that I could not have lived up to it for so many reasons. Because how can we in this 
challenging time of physical health challenges, of cultural and social upheaval and change, and times of discussion and revolution, how can we feel that same level of confidence and boldness in our lives that is required to live up to that? But if a guy eating hot dogs can do it, can we? I agree, Kayla. Yes. Yes. Now, I want to share two stories today. Two stories that are connected in a unique way. And I want to start in Numbers chapter 13. I want to read to you and share with you this morning one of the most discouraging stories in the whole Bible. This is one of the most discouraging and heartbreaking stories in the whole Bible. Because in a moment, in a moment, the fate of an entire generation of a million, millions of people is determined. Their fate for an entire generation, for decades, is determined by a single moment of fear. These Israelites who have escaped from slavery in Egypt, you know the story, the ten plagues, let my people go. No, we will not let your people go. Okay, we'll hit you with another plague. Until we've done the ten and a bunch of people died and now we leave. And then we get stopped by the Red Sea and no, God parts the Red Sea. And millions of people cross on dry land, and then the Egyptians with all their chariots go in, and they are smothered by the water. And then the Israelites go into the wilderness, and in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, God appears to them, and it is scary and unbelievable and miraculous as he leads them with a pillar of cloud by day and a fire in the sky at night. He gives them the Ten Commandments, chiseled in stone with the finger of God, and they go through so many miraculous, incredible events, and then God leads them to the edge of this promised land, this amazing land, a land that they have dreamed of and been told that they would inherit, a, a land that is said to be flowing with milk and honey, which is just a way of saying, it's amazing. It's amazing. Better than they could have dreamed of. So much better than their life in Egypt and in this wilderness. And while they are on the cusp of greatness, the cusp of all their sacrifices and all their faith paying off, Moses sends, who, Moses, who is the leader of the group, sends 12 spies into the land to just kind of look around and see what's going on in here and to report back. And 10 of the spies, after everything they have seen and everything they have done, they say with great conviction, we can't do it. We can't take this land. We can't defeat these people. There is no shot. You realize that we are not warriors. We are not trained for battle. And these people and their cities, they have been prepared and fighting battles for generations to defend their lands and their cities, and we're not ready. Listen, buddy, there's giants in there. 
I'm not talking about just kind of big people. So we lost power for a second here at the building. It was very dramatic and very exciting. But we're still going, and we're all still here, and the power is back now. So I'm going to continue on. So these 10 spies came out, and they were scared. They said, we can't, we can't do it. There is actual literal giants in there, big, gigantic people that we will never be able to take down. And, and here's this dialogue that starts here. In Numbers chapter 13, beginning in verse 30, then Caleb, who was one of the two other spies, because there were two spies that actually believed they could do it. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him, the other ten, said, we can't attack those people. They are stronger than we are. And they, these men spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land that they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there are of great size. And they got scared. They got nervous. And all of a sudden, there was an uprising among the people that said, Let's turn back. Let's turn back. We cannot do this. We are afraid. And then, a few verses ahead, in Numbers chapter 14, beginning in verse 6, Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jetheth. Now, when I was a kid in church, we had a joke. And the joke was, who was the character in the Bible who had no parents? And the answer is, Joshua, son of Nun. Yeah, that's a good one. But actually, if you don't have the scriptures in front of you, it's spelled N-U-N, and that was just his dad's name. None. Okay. So Joshua and Caleb, who were, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes and said to the entire Israelite assembly. Now, when they tore their clothes, that was just like a sense of great suffering and turmoil. Back then, they tore their clothes when they were very upset and, and disturbed. And, um, and they said to the entire assembly, the land we pass through and explored is exceedingly good. If the Lord is pleased with us, he will lead us into that land, a land flowing with milk and honey, and will give it to us. Only do not rebel against the Lord, and do not be afraid of the people of the land, because we will swallow them up. Their protection is gone, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. But the whole assembly talked about stoning them. So these two guys that were standing up giving a positive message of faith and audacity and hope, the people said, shut up or we will kill you. We will hit you with rocks until you are dead. That's stoning. And the people declared they wouldn't go in. They weren't going to follow the lead of God and of these faithful leaders. And God said, fine, if you won't go in, then here's what we will do instead. For the next 40 years, you, this group of people, I'm just going to have you wandering around in the wilderness. God had them essentially walking in circles in the middle of the wilderness for 40 years, 
four decades in an uninhabitable place. Essentially what he said was, everyone over the age of 20, we're essentially going to wait till they die. And once this whole generation is dead, we'll take this new generation and we'll see if they have the faith to go in. And only Joshua and Caleb, only these two faithful spies, they're the only two that are going to live to see the land that are over the age of 20. And that's exactly what happened. And 40 years later, Joshua became the leader of the group in Moses' stead when Moses passed away, and he led them in. But an entire generation of millions of people missed out. They missed out on what God had intended and planned and dedicated for them. And instead what they did was walk around in circles. Was walk around in circles. That is depressing. That is horrible. But the reason it resonates so much with me is because of my fear that I'm doing it too. That I'm doing it too. That God is putting before me these amazing opportunities and in fear, I am looking at them and saying, I don't think so. I don't think so. I'm not feeling settled about that. I'm feeling a little bit disturbed and uncomfortable by that. I'm worried about that. So I am not going to push through. And what I then do is spend years, decades, wandering in circles in the wilderness instead of being willing to boldly claim what God has so generously offered me. I think there are moments in our lives where we are called, where we are called, where there is a clear sense that we each have individually. No one can really understand it or interpret it except for you. But there are moments when you, in your heart and in your mind and in your spirit, have a clear calling. Where God is saying to you, go. Or he's saying, speak. Or he's saying, move. Or change. Or build. Or where he's saying, shut up, stay, destroy, walk away. But these are moments of calling. And I think what's so interesting about these moments of calling, that these big instances that we have in our lives, oh, almost always, we know clearly that they are bigger than what we can accomplish ourselves by ourselves, on our own. They are bigger. They are too much. They are too audacious. We feel like Joey Chestnut standing in the wings, ready to eat some hot dogs, being introduced like that. And we're like, I think this is too much. I don't think I'm capable of that sort of epic journey. We feel like hobbits in a shire, being called out on a bold adventure and feeling very unqualified for the journey. 
And yet, and yet, our job still within that is to make a choice. Is to make a choice. Because although we acknowledge that there is power in the universe that is greater than ours, we still have that responsibility to make a choice. Now, I want to contrast this story with another story, a story that is one of the most famous stories in the whole Bible, which you have heard a gazillion times in your life. But it is a story about another giant. Still giants. We're going to keep talking about giants. Is, this story is in 1 Samuel chapter 17. What story do you think I could be talking about? 1 Samuel chapter 17, it's another story about giants. David and Goliath. Sorry. This is David and Goliath. You know the story. Only a little boy David. Well, maybe he wasn't so little. We're not sure. But he was kind of a kid, teenager, something around that age. He shows up at a battle. There is another giant. His name is Goliath. And he is challenging the army of Israel. And what he has challenged is to say, look, we got all these soldiers here. Typically, we would fight all the soldiers against each other until one army is superior. Goliath said, let's not do that. You pick a champion, we'll pick a champion. By the way, champion is me on our side because I'm the biggest and the strongest and the tallest. My shoe size is the greatest of all of the people in the room. Couldn't buy his shoes at Walmart like everybody else. He had to have them specially made because of how big his feet were. And he says, you pick your champion, we'll fight it out, and in whoever wins this one-on-one -on -one battle, their army wins the whole thing. And nobody from Israel would go out there. Nobody would go out. Then all of a sudden, this shepherd boy David shows up to give some supplies to his brothers, and he hears about this. He hears this guy standing day after day shouting curses about God, saying horrible things about his chosen people, speaking blasphemy. And David says, I'm going to take him down. I'm going to take him down. And he doesn't go out with a sword, and he doesn't go out with a shield. He just goes out with a little sling and some stones, five stones, right, that he got from the brook. And when he goes down to this battle, you can imagine what Goliath would have thought to himself about this. I don't even want to imagine what all these brave soldier men standing up there on the top of the ravine looking down would have said, what was their self-talk like? Well, sure hope this works out. I mean, this is ridiculous that these guys would all allow this little boy to go down there when they for days have been sitting there. So here is David walking down in this ravine to once again face a giant. Now, Pastor Benjamin and I were talking about this this morning, wondering if it was possible that Goliath was a descendant of these exact same giants that generations ago were the ones that these millions of Israelites ran in terror from back then. 
were we just repeating this same story again? Here we go to face the giants. And as this whole army stands in fear, only one little boy, only another Caleb, another Joshua, is willing to walk down into the valley and fight. But the difference this time is that it's been positioned as a one-on-one -on -one fight. It doesn't require the whole nation. This is one-on-one. -on -one. So with a choice, he doesn't have to wait for a whole nation to agree. He can, on his own, make a bold choice. And he walks down in this ravine, and here's what happens. If you like good fight talk, this part's for you, because this is so great. Let's see here. It starts in 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 42. Goliath looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. Mm, that's tough talk. I'm going to give your, your we're going to kill you and the beasts and the birds are going to eat your body. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will hand you over to me and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. If David had been alive today, they definitely would have had him do the introductions at the hot dog eating contest. Because that was some bold talk right there. That was bold talk for a little kid with no armor and a sword and, a, and a, just a sling and a couple of stones to talk like that. Man, the faith, the boldness. But here's what I love in this passage that to me is almost kind of the crazy over-the-top part. It's where he says, I'll strike you down and cut off your head. But the reality is, David didn't have a sword. David didn't have a sword. How was he going to cut off his head without a sword? That's kind of a ridiculous claim. And when he was so tall, how was he going to get up there and cut off his head anyway? So essentially, David was walking into a battle, making a claim in faith that he had no resources, no ability, no evidence of anything that he could accomplish of what he was saying. It's like the ultimate trash talk, except in this case, how was he possibly going to accomplish this? Now, in case I sound too critical, of those Israelites, those generations before, they had every reason to be afraid. 
If you had sat down with them, just as you could have done with David, and took a piece of paper and drew a line down the middle of it and did that thing that some grown-up teaches every one of us to do at some point in our life, which is write the pluses on one side and the minuses on the other side, both of these scenarios would have been situations where the list of pluses would have been very small and the list of minuses would have been incredibly long. You could have gone on and on all day about all the reasons why this wasn't going to work, about why this wasn't a good plan, about all the reasons why we should just hole up in our houses and just wait for this to pass us by, and if we can manage to get through this with our lives and with our finances and with our families and our clothes and all of our food and sheep intact, we should just hunker down for a while and just hope it goes away. I'm tempted to do that right now in many ways in my life, to just cross my fingers and say, well, I kind of hope this all gets better. I'm not really particularly equipped to do anything about it on a big level. But even in my life right now, I don't feel particularly bold. Now, here's what then happens. You know the story. David takes one little stone, and he swings it around in his sling, and it goes up, and it hits the giant Goliath right between the eyes, and kind of below the forehead there, and the giant goes down. One shot. One shot. And here's what it says in verse 50. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and the writer wants to make sure you didn't forget, without a sword in his hand. He wants to point that out again, just so you don't forget. Remember he made this claim about he's going to cut off his head and he didn't have a sword? He still doesn't have a sword. He killed him without a sword, in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. This is the good part, though. Verse 51, David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine sword and drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, cut off his head with the sword. He didn't have a sword. He didn't need a sword. He walked into the battle with a sense that the sword was going to show up. That what he needed to finish that bold declaration, that calling that God has put on his heart and in his spirit, would arrive. That it would be there when he needed it to be there. You know, before all this coronavirus stuff, I used to travel a lot. And, you know, it never crossed my mind as I traveled. I, I wonder how I'm going to get water when I am on the plane, like, and when I'm at the airport, like, I need water to live. Will they have water in Phoenix when I arrive? Will there be water at the hotel? Will there be water in my room? Like, it never crossed my mind to think about whether or not there was going to be water there. And when I got on the plane, I would never say to the flight attendants, is there water on this plane? Because I'm going to need some water. I get real dehydrated when we get high up in the air. Do you have water? This is a long flight. I've never once done that. I sort of have this sense in me that when I need water, 
there will be water. There will be water. It will show up. Now, in many ways in my life, that goes against some other pieces of my life where I'm not so inclined to live that way. I'm not so inclined to live that way about money. To just say, you know, I bet when I need the money, there'll be money. I bet, and you could go down the list of what your greatest fears are. Now, last week, I think it was last week, Melody had a big whiteboard up here, and she asked the group, what your, what, tell me about some of your fears. And most of the fears came from our young people, who were more willing to talk about their fears, because we as grown-ups are kind of embarrassed about our fears. And when we really go deep into it, like, you could talk about spiders and stuff like that that you're afraid of, but when you get really deep down into your greatest fears, man, they touch on some really deep personal things. Things from your past and your history, things that deep down reveal vulnerabilities within your heart and within your spirit that you would rather not tell the world that you are vulnerable in that place because even just speaking it out loud makes you more vulnerable. But the question is, in these things that are our greatest giants, our greatest fears, are we able to walk up against those giants, to know on the surface we are not equipped, we are not ready. We do not want this. We are not going to invite this. In fact, we would rather turn tail and run. But to walk into the battle with the knowledge that we are not equipped, but with the belief, God will give us the sword that we need. That in the moment when it is necessary, that sword will show up. I don't like living that way. I want full-on plans. We'll do this, then we'll do this, then we'll do this, then we'll do this. But rarely is that how God works. God is a man of God. He walks through the wilderness with these people saying to them, I'm going to give you the food you need for today, and then tomorrow we'll deal with tomorrow. We'll do it that way instead. I don't like living that way because that sort of life forces me to look my deepest fears in the face. And I'm not talking about fear of heights, fears of planes, fears of sharks, fears of jellyfish, fears of the dark, fears of public speaking. All of those things, they're on the surface. Underneath every single one of those fears, Bigger fears. Identity-shaping fears that hold us back. Fears that when we receive a calling and that we feel like, man, I, I probably should move forward with this. Fears that that calling is wrong. Is wrong. No, we shouldn't do that. That actually, following that, fo that calling will corrupt us. It will lead us into the wrong place. Fears that we will be rejected. That people will not accept us, will not want us. Fears that we are actually worthless. That we are not as powerful as we dream of being. Fears that we will lose ourselves. That if we go down this path, I won't be me anymore. Fear that we're incompetent 
that we will not be able to pull this together, fear that we will not have the proper support and direction that we need along the way, fears of the pain we will have to suffer, the things we will have to be deprived of along the way, fear of being out of control, losing control of ourself, fear of the division and the conflict that calling might create in your life and in the lives of people that you love. Those things cause us to stand and say, giants are too big. We will not listen to your bold speeches. We will stand back. But we do not move forward because of our own strength. We move forward because of the strength of the God who loves us. Now, you may have heard it said, and I've said it before, when, when we encounter, when you encounter something, you say, I, this, is, this requires more faith than I have. I do not have enough faith for this. I don't have enough faith to take this step. I hope this doesn't offend you when I say this, but that is a knuckleheaded thing to say because that's putting your faith in your faith instead of putting your faith in God because it was never about you. In fact, that's the point. That's the point. It was never about you. It was always about God. So if you are waiting for your faith to get strong enough to move forward, it will never happen. Stop putting your faith in your faith. Put your faith in God and let him lead you forward. Because, dear friend, this is the truth, that you are the beloved child of God, chosen before even the day you were born for a calling, for a mission. And you've been blessed by God on that journey. You've also been broken, hurt, suffered along the way. But within that brokenness is that purpose. To be sent out into the world to make a difference. And so if today you are not feeling very bold, I invite you and give you full permission to borrow some of my boldness. Because when I look at you, what I see is what I, what I know God sees. That magnificent potential to create, to build, to love, to serve, to change, to make the world better than the way you found it. And what is so beautiful about this community of people and why I love it so much is that they see it in you too. They see it in you too. We could walk around this room and talk about you for a very long time and about why we continue to invest heart and energy, time into you, partially because we've been, we've been called to do it, but partially because we see the beauty and the light 
that God has put in you, and we want to see it shine in the world. But that boldness is a choice. It's a choice. God is ready to do his part, to lead you into the land, to help you slay that giant. But will you make the choice to move ahead? Will you allow us in this community to support you in that bold choice? And even in the midst of all of your fear, to believe that God fights for you and that he will never leave you and that he will always be with you even until the end of the world. That is the invitation today. And in whatever part of your life you are feeling fear, God is calling you to be bold. To be bold, to be brave, and to move forward into spaces that perhaps you have always been afraid of before. Don't spend your life wandering in the wilderness with audacity and daring. Claim the blessings that God has promised and that he wants for you, for your family, and for everyone in the world. Let's pray. We are grateful, God, that you love us, that you care about us, and that you are committed to walking with us. That even when we feel afraid, even when we have no boldness and we are filled with fear, give us courage. We need your courage, and your strength in our lives today. Help us to stand up for each other and to help us and to help each other embrace the callings that you have given us and that we as a community, as a church, would move forward in bold ways and take bold action together. In Jesus' name, amen.